This is a Rooster Teeth production. November 8th, 1957. Pan Am Flight 7 is flying around the world. The regularly scheduled flight is on the first of 15 legs around the world, flying from San Francisco to Honolulu before continuing on to Tokyo. Five and a half hours after takeoff, the captain radios in a regular check with the flight's position and conditions, then they are never heard from again. The plane, along with the 44 people on board, disappears before ever reaching Honolulu. A search is conducted in an area the size of Montana over the Pacific Ocean. Six days later, some wreckage and bodies are recovered 900 miles east of Honolulu. What happened to Pan Am Flight 7? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. Hello, Chris. Hello. Doing a little bit of an older episode this week, but still interesting. Still a lot of stuff we can learn from it regardless. Before we get into it, as always, I want to remind you, give us a follow on social media at Black Box Down Pod, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We're there. We're there. Where else are we? YouTube. Oh, yeah. We're on YouTube. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and of course, our home at roosterteeth.com as well. And also, I, I normally forget to say it at the beginning of the episodes. Normally, you have to remind me at the end, Chris. We have new merch. We have new merchandise. We've got Black Box Down shirt, mug, and a bumper sticker. So go check it out at store.roosterteeth.com and just search for Black Box Down. Yeah. Okay. Pan Am Flight 7. Interesting concept. I wish we still had flights like this. Maybe we do. Maybe I just don't know. But Pan Am at this time would regularly schedule flights that would fly around the world. So in this particular flight's case, it would take off from the West Coast, fly all the way around the world, and then come back and land on the East Coast of the United States. And it would make 15 stops along the way. And this sounds like the coolest flight ever. It's pretty cool. Also, if you had a ticket, you could arrange so that you could get off at any of the stops you know, spend as much time as you want to in that city and then just get on the next round the world flight that's coming through. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Yeah. If you got the ticket, how long would your like pass last? I can't say for certain. What I can tell you is this though, that if, for example, on this flight, if you took off from San Francisco on a Friday and you flew west all the way around the world, you would eventually come around and land in Philadelphia on Wednesday. I can tell you the fastest you could get through it was between Friday and Wednesday. What is that, like five days? That's pretty reasonable. That's the absolute fastest. You could not get through any faster than that. But, like, that just sounds awesome. Because you could, I'm just going to revel in how awesome this might have been. You buy one ticket. I'm sure it's expensive. But then you could travel around the entire world with just that one ticket and stay for as long as you want in all these other places. I want I want, I want this flight. Yeah, it's a, it's a really cool idea. I'd. I wish we still did. I guess today it would probably be super expensive. It was honestly, I bet it was super expensive to do back then. You know, we're talking about this is before the jet age. So flights were probably still really super expensive and probably only the wealthy were flying. Mm. I mean, like I mentioned, this flight only had what, 44 people on it. Uh, and that includes the crew. Oh, so it's how big of a plane is it? It's a, it's a plane we're not familiar with. It's called a Boeing 377 Stratocruiser. I keep wanting to say Stratocaster because, you know, because of uh, guitars. <laughs> but it was initially introduced in the late 40s, in 1949, uh, and it was retired by 1963. It was, a, it was a plane with like four propellers. And at most, it could carry up to 100 passengers on the main deck and then it had capacity for another 14 in like a lower deck lounge. But typically, it was the seating would hold between 63 and 84 passengers. Hmm. So not big by any stretch of the imagination. Okay. It was an interesting plane. Like I said, like I did allude to, it did have two decks, which uh, I think is pretty cool. So specifically, we're talking about Pan Am Flight 7, this particular incident. Like I said, it was a westbound flight around the world. 
took off in San Francisco, bound first stop Honolulu, November 8th, 1957. The flight was crewed by Captain Gordon H. Brown, who was 40 years old and had 11,314 flight hours. First Officer William P. Wingant, who was 37 and had 7,355 hours of flight time. And Second Officer William H. Fortenberry, who was the pilot navigator with 2,683 flight hours. And they also had flight engineer Albert Pinataro, who was 26, with 1,596 flight hours. I, I feel compelled to, to point something out here. Mm-hmm. He said the captain, Gordon Brown, was 40 years old, had, you know, like I said, 11,300 flight hours. He had been, at this point, he was a 17-year veteran. <laughs> like, he'd been flying since he was 23. So he had a ton of experience. And I just think that it's, uh, it's crazy that at, at 40 years old, you know, someone who's a little younger than me had already been <laughs> flying for 17 years at that point. Yeah. Okay, like I mentioned before, the aircraft used was a Boeing 377 Stratocruiser with the nickname Clipper Romance of the Skies. First flew August of 1949 and had about 23,690 hours, a little over eight years old. This type of plane was developed in the 1940s with its first flight on July 8th, 1947, ultimately retired in 1963. It was a four-engine propeller aircraft could seat up to 100 passengers. And on this particular flight, there were 36 passengers with four flight attendants and then four people up in the cockpit. So in 1947, which is 10 years before this incident, Pan American World Airways offered the first regularly scheduled around-the-world flights. Uh, They would start either on the West Coast and fly west, or they'd start on the East Coast and fly east, and the flight would end on the opposite coast from where it started. At the time, (laughs) so we were talking about how expensive this probably would be. I've actually got the dollar figures here for how much it cost. Oh, nice, because I was like trying to look it up while you were talking. I was like, how much was it? So do you want to take a guess? I'll let you guess in today's money. So they had the option to buy a single ticket or two tickets together for a couple. So if you want to take a guess at either, in today's money, the single ticket price or the couple ticket price. Um, I'm going to try single ticket. And it, how long does it last for? Does it matter? I don't know. I can't say for certain. I'm going to guess. But it does take you around the world. You're guaranteed that. $35,000. That's a pretty good guess, Chris. Really? Uh, at the time, the economy class ticket cost for one person cost $2,300 or $4,000 for a couple. And remember, this is in 1947. So today a single ticket would have cost $28,000 and the equivalent for a couple would be $48,000. That is a lot of money. It's a lot of money, but also a pretty good guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a really good guess. You were close. So like I mentioned, this particular flight would start in San Francisco on a Friday morning and then end in Philadelphia the following Wednesday with 15 stops in between. The flight was scheduled to depart at 7.51 p.m. UTC, which is 11.51 a.m. San Francisco time. And then it was going to arrive in Hawaii at 5.50 a.m. UTC, which is roughly, I mean, what is that, about 10 hours later. They left with enough fuel for about 13 hours of flight time, which, you know, should be enough. And the forecasted weather looked good. The flight planned to cruise at 10,000 feet with a speed of 226 knots, which is 260 miles an hour or 419 kilometers an hour. So I just want to put something uh, into perspective here. Like I said, the flight was flying at 10,000 feet and 226 knots. And I thought that was really funny compared to how we fly nowadays. You know, nowadays, if you take this flight from San Francisco to Honolulu, uh, let's say you're on a 777, which, you know, is a plane they might use on this flight. You'd be cruising at 35,000 feet with a cruising speed of typically around 554 miles an hour. So mm-hmm. it was like we fly over twice as fast and over three times as high nowadays as we did compared to back then. I mean, just the fact that this was a 10-hour flight is crazy to me. Nowadays, you make this flight in less than six hours. Oh, yeah. that. Well, I mean, I guess it, it's just old. I mean, that's like 70 years ago. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was a propeller plane. They couldn't go as high, couldn't go as fast. But uh, we we definitely fly a lot higher and a lot faster now than we used to, and a lot more reliably. (laughs) So the crew gave regular position reports every hour or so, and at 1.04 a.m. UTC, the crew checked in with nothing unusual to report. But the next hour, at 2.04 a.m. UTC, the crew did not check in. And after 30 minutes of not hearing from the crew, the company notified the Coast Guard. Search and rescue operations began, and then a few days later on November 14th, an aircraft located bodies and parts of wreckage about 940 miles east of Honolulu, about 90 miles north of the flight's planned flight path. The next day, some more bodies were found, totaling 19, with 14 of them wearing life jackets and none of them wearing shoes. No one wearing shoes. That's weird. What do you think about that? No shoes because maybe um, it was like a cultural thing where they took their shoes off uh, in the plane. That sounds weird. It probably isn't true. Or maybe the shoes were weighing them down in the water. That's my takeaway. Since 14 of them were wearing life jackets and none of them had shoes on, they may have known they were going down and were preparing for a water ditching. Since uh, it's a lot harder to kick and swim when you're wearing shoes. Okay. I didn't know you took your shoes off for that. That's good to know. They just, if you're wearing shoes, they're going to get wet and waterlogged. They're going to weigh you down. It's more difficult to kick with them. You may as well uh, just get rid of them. I'm going to write that down. (laughs) So the investigation was under the direction of the Civil Aeronautics Board that included two board investigators, representatives of Pan American World Airways, and representatives from the CAA, which is the Civil Aviation Authority, and two pathologists from the Armed Force Institute of Pathology. The bodies were examined with no evidence of foul play being found. The investigators then looked at the aircraft material that was recovered, and the material mostly consisted of fuselage secondary structure, fuselage interior trim and equipment items, and numerous packets of mail and mail bags. And only one piece of the wreckage did not come from the fuselage, and this was a section of an engine cowl support ring, which was found embedded in a pillow. Uh, No portions of the main airframe structure were found, and the recovered fuselage pieces were generally from the area ahead of the rear pressure bulkhead, both above and below the cabin floor line, and most of these pieces came from the right side. So it's a very limited piece of the plane that they're looking at, essentially. Okay. There were a lot of parts that they couldn't recover because it was, you know, in the middle of the ocean. And it was also, what, 1957? Yeah. So investigators found that some of the recovered pieces had distinct evidence of fire damage. However, it was determined that the fire damage was on pieces that floated above the waterline. Fire markings were fairly uniform over material from the fuselage, mail, and cabin material. And each charred piece had a definite waterline where the charring stopped. Do you have any thoughts about what that might mean? If so, you could see that. It was on fire when it... Okay, so you say there was a, a, a charred line from the water line? Right. They had a definite water line where the charring stopped. Okay, well then, so then it caught fire when it landed? Right. So that means it most likely was not on fire in the air. Or if it was, it was a smaller fire and then it got bad. Right. Since, you know, obviously, if it's just fire above the water line, you know, fire can't exist in the ocean. That means it wasn't on fire before it hit. It caught on fire yeah. after. That's why... Only the parts above the waterline have charring on them. Yeah. Again, just guesses at this point, right? Uh, The investigators did not see any evidence of an in-flight fire on any of the pieces that were recovered, and laboratory tests of the charred pieces did not show evidence of a prohibited or explosive material. The investigators then examined the debris for evidence of an in-flight explosion, but could not find anything that would suggest an explosion happened. They took a look at the cargo manifest for explosive or dangerous material, and found there was a shipment of sodium sulfide in the Ford cargo compartment. This package consisted of one pound of sodium sulfide in a sealed glass container and one-fourth pound in another sealed glass container. 
Both containers had padding between them and the shipping container, which was a wooden box. It was further learned from the shipper that the material consisted of crystalline sodium sulfide of the highest grade of purity and was the only chemical compound shipped in the box. And it was packed in accordance with prescribed regulations. And this sodium sulfide, it's a reactive flammable solid that's shipped in airtight containers in a yellow crystalline form, which even if exposed to air, it would be safe to handle and transport. But if sodium sulfide comes in contact with moisture, it generates oh. hydrogen sulfide gas, which is toxic, but the rate it would be released would be slow and it would be detectable because the amount generated would not be dangerous before being noticed because it gives off a very foul odor, similar to rotten eggs. So if it was, you know, venting gas, they would have been able to smell it before it was dangerous. On the plane. Correct. So like if it got wet and then it starts being stinky, they'd be like, oh no. Yeah, then they would know like, oh, we need to vent the cabin or something, you know. Why were they transporting this stuff? It was uh, being shipped via the plane. But just, just like... No passenger had it. It was just like, okay. It was just on the plane. Like I said, they also had mail. They were probably, you know, that's one of the things that they do is they'll carry mail or cargo. So that's also in the cargo hold as well, on top of the, or besides the uh, passenger luggage. And like I said, the investigators believe the crew would have had plenty of time to put on masks, depressurize and ventilate the aircraft and perform any emergency materials if this gas had been leaking. The material is pretty widely used and it wasn't uncommon for it to be shipped by air. Also included in the cargo was a package containing a small amount of radioactive medicine, which was also packaged in accordance with the prescribed regulations. It was sealed in a metal capsule about one inch long and contained in a hermetically sealed can that was placed in a cardboard box labeled as radioactive material. Neither of these two shipments were actually recovered by the investigators, uh, but they had no reason to believe either contributed to the accident. It's just noted that there was some hazardous material on flight, but it probably did not have anything to contribute to this particular incident. Okay. So... Not necessarily a red herring, but just kind of want to set the stage for what they're thinking about. It was determined that the probable point of impact was about 105 miles west of its last position report and about 30 degrees off course to the north. Position was computed from known ocean current vectors and current winds. Lack of knowledge of both the time and start of descent and precise impact point make it impossible to determine the airspeed or the descent rate during the descent. Basically, they don't know enough to be able to predict how quickly it came down and exactly where it landed and i assume like black boxes are a lot harder to they aren't are they as much of a thing then no not really no (laughs) i didn't think so okay so in fact the black box was kind of i would say it was kind of unofficially created in 1953 it existed but not really by 1957 in 1957 was when the first prototypes were produced so they definitely were not really on planes at this point at all because they're still the super rudimentary uh, stages at this point in 1957. Okay. So, you know, since they didn't have a black box, that's why they kind of have to try to figure out what happened on their own. And they're, they're, they're looking at an incomplete picture. They were, however, able to determine that the time of impact was at about 1.27 a.m. UTC based on the time that was found on some wristwatches that were stopped. And this oh. would have been like 23 minutes after their last communication. Stopped because they got wet? Uh, or the impact, yeah, they just mm. weren't working anymore. So some of the bodies they recovered had watches and they were stopped at that time. So they can determine that that's you know, probably when the crash happened. You ever seen the movie uh, Chinatown? Yeah, but it's been a while. There's a scene in it where you know Jack Nicholson plays a private investigator uh, in the, I believe it's in the 40s in Los Angeles. And he's tailing someone and he wants to, you know, he sees where they park, where their car, he needs to figure out 
you know, he doesn't want to stay there and watch them the whole time to figure out what time they leave. So he puts two wristwatches under the car's tires, one in front of the tire and one behind the tire. Oh, yeah. So that way when they take off and go, they run over the watch and stop it <laughs> so he knows what time that uh, the car moved. So that's what this kind of reminds me of, you know, uh, a broken watch when it stops that tells you when, you know, in, in this case, impact or water damage happened and that's when things went wrong. So anyway, that's uh, the, the fact that they looked at wristwatches made me think of Chinatown. How great would it be to find new recipes without having to actually find them or track down every single ingredient while reducing food waste at the same time? No, I'm not talking about some magical word. I'm talking about reality, the reality of HelloFresh. They send fresh pre-portioned ingredients for quick recipes directly to your door. HelloFresh has a family-friendly menu that's perfect for the hectic back-to-school times. They offer 50 weekly recipes in a range of flavors, cuisines, and pre-portioned ingredients, so it's an easy way to try new things without committing to owning an entire bottle of something. HelloFresh reduces your food waste by 25% because you're only getting what you need and you're never overbuying. Uh, and if you've got environmental concerns, I, you know, I know we all do, uh, HelloFresh's packaging is made almost entirely from recyclable or already recycled materials. There's something really nice about, you know, after a long day of work, just kind of, like it's, it's like one final fun project to finish the day and when it's all done, you get to eat your project. I mean, how often do you get to say that? For me personally, there's something really soothing about just putting out the instructions, getting all my ingredients, and just making something delicious to eat. I love it myself. Uh, anyway, go to HelloFresh.com slash BlackBoxDown14 and use code BlackBoxDown14. That's BlackBoxDown in the number one and the number four. Uh, for up to 14 free meals, including free shipping. That's up to 14 free meals, including free shipping at HelloFresh.com slash BlackBoxDown14 with code BlackBoxDown14. Do you have online shopping FOMO? Because if you don't have Honey, you're definitely missing out. Honey is a free online shopping tool that scours the internet for coupon codes and automatically applies them to your cart. You don't have to remember to use it, just install in your browser. And when you're ready to check out, Honey button drops down and says, hey, you know, I've got these sweet coupon codes. You want to try them? And Honey will automatically try and apply any working codes to your cart. Super easy. Uh, personally, I was shopping for some jeans recently. Uh, went online to, you know, a big website where I buy a lot of stuff. Found some and then I forgot Honey was there. It just drops down. It's like, hey, here's a code. You want to save some money? I'm like, yeah, of course I want to save some money. It's, it's so easy. Uh, if you don't already have Honey, you could be straight up missing out on free savings. It's literally free and installs in a few seconds. And by using it, you'll be doing yourself a solid and supporting this podcast. Never recommend something I don't use. So get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash blackboxdown. That's joinhoney.com slash blackboxdown. Want to learn a box like Muhammad Ali? Okay, maybe not quite heavyweight legend level, but like maybe your own best inner boxer? Well, Fight Camp brings the boxing and kickboxing gym to you with full body workouts that you'll actually enjoy and actually do. Fight Camp is for everyone, from kids to adult beginners to experienced boxers. They got multiple learning tracks that teach you boxing skills plus training workouts. Fight Camp comes with all the gear necessary to box at home, including a freestanding punching bag, boxing gloves, and quick hand wraps. Plus, they have unique tracking sensors that challenge you and help you track your boxing and kickboxing progress. It was really cool, I'll admit. You know, I was maybe a little intimidated when I thought about trying to learn how to box, but I set up all the fight camp stuff, which was super easy, by the way, and uh, super convenient to do. And I know it's like a weird thing to say, but I was worried about like how to wrap my hands, but the quick hand wraps they give you are super easy to put on. It's all great. I can't recommend it enough. Uh, it's really a super cool thing to do, even if you're super uncoordinated and old like me. <laughs> they make it really easy with, uh, you know, all the stuff that they send you and the app. You can learn, you know, from knowing nothing like I did. Uh, seriously, Fight Camp can teach you to move like a butterfly and sting like a bee. You can pay for your Fight Camp over 24 months for less than the cost of a boxing gym and get it right away. Plus, Fight Camp offers free shipping with a 30-day money-back guarantee. 
Go to joinfightcamp.com slash blackboxdown to get free shipping on Fight Camp. Go to joinfightcamp.com slash blackboxdown. Again, that's joinfightcamp.com slash blackboxdown. And we also wanted to do something a little different this time. We wanted to give you a podcast recommendation from uh, some of our friends over at the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network, the SCP Archives podcast. We've worked with them before. If you listen to Black Box Down, when we did our most recent analysis of plane incidents in movies, we talked about, uh, I've talked about Die Hard 2 at length. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> that was the episode. They were the ones uh, chatting with us. Yeah. And SCP Archives is a weekly anthology horror podcast uh, where they have full cast acting, immersive sound effects, and an incredible original soundtrack. And if you're like, well, what is SCP Archives? SCP articles are those like UFO TikToks or like weird web pages with redactions and like conspiracy theories and and monsters and shadow governments. Yeah, it's like all that spooky stuff. It makes me think of like uh, the X-Files, like stuff you would see uh, on there, yeah. But it's a really great podcast. So if if you're looking for something just very like like a radio play immersive and there might be a special episode that features uh, a plane and some wonderful voice actors. Uh, mm, I'm interested. Hmm. Like you said, I think that's the most impressive thing. It's like it's like a, a, a truly immersive like audio play or radio play or audio drama. Yeah. And there's going to be a, a special episode soon. So yeah, go uh, go check out um, uh, SCP Archives. Just search for them wherever you get podcasts. Uh, just SCP Archives, and then uh, give them a listen and subscribe. Uh, they're friends, and they make good content. Yeah. So investigators determine that a fairly flat angle of impact is indicated by the nature of damage to the recovered material, its location within the aircraft, and by the lack of severe mutilation of the bodies. So when they say flat angle, they say that it didn't like dive into the ocean. They think that it, maybe they were trying to ditch mm-hmm. or you know land on the water. The part of the aircraft from which recovered wreckage came indicated breakage of the fuselage at about the same locations as has occurred on previous survivable ditchings of the same model of aircraft. So... They look at other planes of this type which you've ditched and said, oh, well, you know, they all had very similar breakups at these same points. So it's conceivable that this plane was trying to ditch and may have ditched onto the water. Well, and there were what, how many people in life jackets? Float? 14. So, I mean, it sounds like those people probably survived, at least in, initially, right? I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves here. Okay. All but right. uh, I think, you know, typically what you would want to, well, how would, you, how would you, do you want to take a guess based on the things that we've talked about on this podcast before? Do you want to take a guess how you, if you could determine whether or not the people were alive uh, when they came into contact with the water? Uh, if they had water in their lungs. That would be a good guess, I think. I think, uh, you know, if you have water inside the body or like in the lungs or in the stomach, then they were probably swallowing or breathing in water, which means that they were alive when they came in contact with the water. I think we're going to be a really good detective duo. <laughs> well, you, you, there's a lot of lessons you can learn. And a lot of the times it's like you look at the same things to determine what happened here, right? It's like yeah, you, you just kind of learn the things that you're going you're gonna to look for in these investigations. So the circumstances, as I described them, suggest a nearly survivable ditching may have been accomplished. From this, it would have been logical to follow that some of the control may have been available at the time of water impact. Exercise of such control would tend to rule out crew incapacitation. So again, if the plane's being controlled, the crew's awake and aware. Mm -hmm. However, two pertinent conclusions regarding the final portion of the flight are evident. Consideration of the distance flown from the last reported position to the impact point and the time required to traverse that distance shows that the flight did not turn back towards Ocean Station November. 
And Ocean Station November is a vessel that communicated with Flight 7 for its scheduled check-in report. Remember when I said that they checked in at like 104 UTC? Uh-huh. They checked in with this boat, which was out at a weather station called Ocean Station November. Also, ditching to the north of the planned route indicates that appreciable lateral distance, not on course and away from the Ocean Station, was traversed after the start of the emergency. So what they're looking at here is that the plane had a problem. It didn't circle back to where it knew there was a boat that it had talked to. Uh-huh. Instead, it kept going away from the Ocean Station and then turned to the north. And that's not the direction they were supposed to be going, right? Correct. They were found about 90 miles north of their intended flight path. So that makes you think maybe something fishy was going on. Maybe, right? Yeah, they didn't turn around to go back to the boat that they had talked to. and they're go- They continue flying away from it. I don't know. It's It's hard to understand why they would have flown away from uh, November. They could, Like I said, they could have turned around. And like I said earlier, weather was not a factor. The weather was fine. There shouldn't have been anything that stopped them from turning. Is there a, a way they could have radioed and said, hey, distress, come get us? You would think so. They had just radioed a regular check-in 23 minutes before the wristwatches stopped. Hmm. This mystery grows deeper. Deep like the Pacific Ocean. Oh. November was a fixed station. It had radio homing, radar devices, rescue equipment. Uh, you know, it had everything that they would have needed. Yeah. The condition of the sea at the time and the place of ditching, again, was not known precisely, but investigators don't think it would have been too different from where the weather vessel was 105 miles to the west. And they said that the sea was usable for ditching. So the conditions were fine for ditching at November, so they think that it would have been okay wherever this plane went down as well. Also, another airline captain commented that the sea conditions were some of the most favorable ditching conditions he'd ever seen. So, consideration of all these factors leads to the belief that either loss of directional control or crew incapacitation was the possible cause of the aircraft proceeding away from November after the start of the emergency. So, they think that maybe the crew couldn't control the direction the plane was going in, or they were incapacitated maybe, but they also say that the way that the plane had control when it touched down into the water... There, there was hmm. some control, so maybe the crew wasn't incapacitated. So there's a lot of mysteries here. Well, maybe like they were able to control the pitch of it, but not the rudder to turn them around or something. It's possible. I don't know. I wish I had an answer for you at this point, but I don't. That's definitely a possibility that they're, they're thinking here. Okay. So because of the limited amount of wreckage recovered, it became important for investigators to determine as much information as they could from the recovered bodies in order to arrive at a better understanding of the emergency that had caused the accident. So of the 19 bodies that were recovered, it was determined that 10 had probably died from drowning. So that answers your question from earlier. Yep. Furthermore, the condition of the body suggested the water impact was not sufficiently great to cause complete disintegration of the aircraft. None of the bodies had been subjected to fire before or after impact. The bodies were tested for toxic material, and initial tests indicated elevated levels of carbon monoxide in several of the recovered bodies. The investigators wanted further tests to corroborate these findings and wanted to determine how high concentrations of carbon monoxide could have been present in the uh, inhabited portions of the fuselage. And, you know, carbon monoxide is a dangerous gas, right? Like, you don't Mm -hmm. smell it, and it can incapacitate you. Oh, wait. Oh. Yeah, it can make you pass out. So if there's a carbon monoxide leak in the cockpit... Right, then conceivably, it could have caused the pilots to pass out. Yeah, but then they still landed okay, so... Right. But also, you know, we've talked about, again, some speculation here. We've talked about other incidents where we say that, you know, the plane wants to fly left on its own. It'll recover. It could be that it was just in a very shallow descent and touched down in a very stable manner. Hmm. Yeah. There's also the fact that we have to remember this ditching was not successful. 
they couldn't recover much of the plane. Okay. So that's the other thing to kind of keep in mind at the same time. So medical tests were conducted by different federal agencies that verified the concentrations found initially, but raised doubt as to the suitability of any test method because of the decomposed state of the bodies. So they say, yeah, there's carbon monoxide in there, but we can't say anything definitive about it because the bodies are decomposing. So at the time of the final report, additional studies were being performed, which may answer the question regarding reliability of carbon monoxide results in cases of postmortem decomposition. But at the time that they published the report on this, the question was unsolved. So investigators made a detailed study of Boeing 377 systems to determine the possible malfunctions which could lead to the generation of carbon monoxide. These were considered with probable variations in the pattern of airflow throughout the fuselage and they determined high levels of carbon monoxide could be generated and distributed unevenly in several ways. Okay. However, it was impossible to relate the elevation of carbon monoxide found in the bodies with the seating arrangement and consequently with the source of carbon monoxide. So they're looking, they're like, yeah, it's possible carbon monoxide could have gotten into the aircraft. Maybe there were pockets of it where some people were incapacitated and some weren't, but they can't say for certain. They don't know, you know where the people were sitting exactly. So they're raising possibilities, but there's too many questions to say anything definitively. And are any of the passengers that they found, or sorry, were they all passengers or any of them crew or... As far as I know, I, I can't say definitively 100%. As far as I know, it was all passengers. They did not recover any of the crew's uh, bodies. Okay. So since pathological study indicated the possibility of carbon monoxide in the cabin prior to impact, the most likely sources must be considered. Carbon monoxide is generated in most any type of fire or by the thermal decomposition of many substances. A large fire within the fuselage is not compatible with the condition of the recovered wreckage, so a smoldering fire would be more likely. So like we talked about earlier, if there was a fire on board, it probably wasn't big. Okay. A smoldering fire would cause considerable smoke in the cabin in addition to the carbon monoxide and contributed to the off-course location of the crash, but should have been controlled by the emergency firefighting equipment carried on board unless the fire had ignited some material like nitrate film. So again, they're saying if there was a smoldering fire, there's equipment on board that should have taken care of it. Such a fire should not have created the need for an immediate ditching unless the smoke accompanying it was excessive and irritating if the fire was uncontrollable. A more probable source of carbon monoxide would be an unusual occurrence in a power package which could have initiated a chain of events leading to the introduction of carbon monoxide into the fuselage. Such an unusual occurrence could be a failure which would release part of a propeller blade, the entire propeller, or a failed turbo supercharger disc. It is likely that such an occurrence would be accompanied by serious flight control problems and possibly a fire. If a propelled object came through the fuselage, it could easily start a fire, knock out some radio equipment, make emergency smoke evacuation procedures ineffective, and destroy the oxygen supply. Such an occurrence fits the known circumstances better than any of the other possibilities. So they're saying here that the propeller or part of the engine, if it failed and then hit the cabin, entered the cabin, entered the fuselage, it could have set off a chain of events that could have led to an emergency, which conceivably could have brought the plane down. And you say failed as in like one of the propellers breaks and shoots into the cabin? Yes. Okay. Either the propeller or like one uh, a part within the engine itself. And they're saying it's an unusual, it would be extremely unusual for this to happen. But, you know, if the strange set of circumstances happen... It could explain this. It's almost like a final destination kind of thing where it's yeah. like there's a, a, a weird freak failure which leads to these other cascading problems and then ultimately uh, results in the plane going down. But then again, they're still just speculating. They also say there's a third type of carbon monoxide source which also fits most of the known circumstances 
And that would be the malicious introduction of pure carbon monoxide into the cabin and flight deck. Malicious, as in someone... As in someone does it intentionally. Because carbon monoxide unaccompanied by smoke would not be recognized by the crew or occupants. Because, like I said, carbon monoxide's colorless and odorless. Under these circumstances, complete incapacitation of the crew would result in the aircraft being flown into the water. Hmm. So the investigators also looked at maintenance records and found they were normal with nothing that could be related directly to the accident. However, there were hard landings that happened in June and October, and the inspections following these were incomplete by mechanics in San Francisco because they were satisfied after just doing a visual inspection. So this plane had gone through a couple of hard landings, but the mechanics just kind of gave it a visual inspection, looked it over and said, yeah, it's fine, don't worry about it. So we don't know. There may have been an underlying issue there that they didn't find as a result of that. Okay. The omission of the main spar inspection during the hard landing check eliminated an important step of the procedure. The investigation found that specific maintenance practices at San Francisco established these practices as not being entirely isolated cases. However, Pan Am was at the time in the process of reviewing and revising their maintenance procedures already. So they say, yeah, I mean, there may have been something messed up from these hard landings, but we don't know because maintenance didn't do anything more than a visual inspection of the plane. Mm. So there were uh, some findings as a result of this. The crew, aircraft, and carrier were currently certified. The flight was properly planned and dispatched. The gross weight of the aircraft at the time of takeoff was 147,000 pounds, which was the maximum allowable. Progress of the flight and position reports were normal and routine for more than half of the planned flight distance. Shortly after the last routine report, an emergency of undetermined nature occurred. This was followed by a descent from 10,000 feet. No emergency message was received from the aircraft. Some preparation for ditching was accomplished. The aircraft broke up on impact. A surface fire then occurred. Weather was not a factor. Exposure of the crew to carbon monoxide was indicated, but incapacitation could not be definitely established. No evidence of foul play or sabotage was found. Irregularities of maintenance practices and or procedures disclosed during the investigation could not be linked to the accident. So all in all, a lot of theories, but nothing definitive. The board has insufficient tangible evidence at this time to determine the cause of the accident. Further research and investigation is in process concerning the significance of evidence of carbon monoxide in body tissue of the aircraft occupants. And then what? And then that's it. Oh, no, we don't ever find out. You don't find out. So nowadays, NTSB reports, you know, and similar agency reports for incidents are about 150 pages long. Uh huh. The report for this incident, you know, different time back then, it was 16 pages long. 16 pages. Yeah. I have a question. Yeah, go ahead. The passengers that they found, you said some of them died from drowning, it sounds like, but like, yeah. How did most of them die? Did like some of them die from like, I don't know, being out in the water for too long? Like, I don't know, dehydration or something? Like exposure or something like that? Yeah, exposure. I can't say for certain. I don't have all of the autopsy results. The only autopsy results that I see mentioned were, you know, the people who drowned and that the people who had uh, carbon monoxide in uh, Mm. their body. And they said that this carbon monoxide detected, I don't know if I said this earlier, carbon monoxide was detected in 14 of the 19 bodies that they recovered. But they can't say definitively if they were incapacitated because the bodies were already decomposing by the time they found them. So it's it's tough to say. And how long from the plane crash did them finding them? So they ended up finding bodies on November 14th and the plane disappeared on November 8th. Six days passed before they were able to start recovering uh, bodies. That's a no one you couldn't survive at sea for that long, right? I don't think so. Unless you had like fresh water, right? Yeah. I think that yeah. would be your your most immediate need. So again, that also goes back to the question of why didn't they turn around and go back to November where they could have been found more quickly? Yeah. Why didn't they radio for an emergency? 
We don't know. So there is a wrinkle to this story that I'm going to toss in here, Chris. Okay, I'm ready. You know, people disappeared. Obviously, these people were probably wealthy if they're, you know, making these flights, right? These are expensive tickets, as we as we talked about. Yeah. Earlier. So these people, some of these people had insurance on them. And the insurance companies, of course, want to do their own investigation to figure oh. out if there's some kind of insurance fraud that's happening. Uh-huh. One of the insurance carriers was a company called Mercury Insurance. They reported that, you know, there was a total of $230,000 in insurance policies for passengers on the flight. And they said that that amount was not unusual. And they thought that this was in a regular amount for these people. And that's the equivalent of $2.1 million in 2020. Okay. However, the following year, Western Life Insurance Company of Helena, Montana, refused to pay a $20,000 life insurance policy on one of the passengers. And that policy had been purchased shortly before the flight. Oh. The passenger uh, was a man named William Payne. He was 41 years old from Scott Bar, California. He had also purchased two air trip policies at the airport, totaling $125,000, which was equivalent to $1.2 million in 2020. Oh my. Wait, for plane tickets? Yeah, it's just like, I don't know what that means, air trip policies. It must have been just like insurance for the trip. Oh. So he had a $20,000 life insurance policy and then these two air trip policies totaling $125,000. Wait, you can buy insurance just for plane flights? So nowadays, I know you can get like trip insurance that cover things like trip cancellation, flight cancellations and delays. Like we need to stay somewhere you're unexpected or you have to rebook. I know that kind of insurance still exists. I don't know that there's necessarily the same kind of air trip insurance that existed back then. Yeah, because I've never heard of that. So yeah, I can't say for certain if that still exists. I don't think it does. Uh, Seems like maybe something that was more of the time. I think about like back then, People trying to promote their movies, offer you know, if they're still trying to promote a scary movie, offering life insurance policies in the lobby of the theater. You ever hear about like old gimmicks like that? No. Like, yeah, our movie's so scary, you can buy a life insurance policy before you go in and watch it. <laughs> that kind of stuff. You know, where it's like nobody's gonna actually die watching a movie. It's just like all gimmicky to try to get people in the door. Yeah. So you know, it was last minute, kind of very niche life insurance policies may have been more of a thing back then as opposed to now. Okay. So anyway, this man, William Payne, uh, his body was not one of the 19 recovered from the crash scene. Oh. And the insurance company contended that there was no evidence that he was actually a passenger on the flight or that he had died. They say that at the time of the crash, Payne was heavily in debt. And the company said the reasons he gave for his trip to Honolulu didn't make sense for someone who was in debt. Like we said, these were expensive tickets. Yeah. He was uh, an honorably discharged Navy veteran who was an explosives expert. (gasps) Oh. His widow filed a $300,000 damage lawsuit, which is equivalent to $2.7 million in 2020, against Pan Am Airways and denied the assertion that her husband was not aboard the plane when it went down. She also filed a lawsuit against the insurance company, compelling it to pay off the policy. How do they not know that he might have not been on the plane? I guess they don't have like digital records back then, so it would just been, did he walk on and hand them a ticket? Right, they don't know. They might, that might not have even been recorded at the time. So, yeah, I mean, it's just, it was a different world. We can't imagine that nowadays, right? You wouldn't know if someone's on a plane or not. They just might not have known. However, like we said before, the investigators said that a laboratory examination of the plane's wreckage had ruled out the possibility of a bomb or any other kind of explosion on the aircraft. Investigators later, they admitted that they had been investigating pain because of his past as an explosives expert, uh, the amount of insurance purchased, and the fact he'd purchased a one-way ticket to Honolulu at a time when he's heavily in debt. Again, there's no evidence that, I want to be very clear, there's no evidence that William Payne planted an explosive on this flight. I just think it's 
it's interesting that the insurance company refused to pay his life policies and said, oh, you know, if you don't know if he was on the plane, just because flying is so different nowadays. There's no way we wouldn't know if someone was on a plane or not. Everything's so much more digitized and tracked. Yeah. Like all of these things are, are, are kept track of all the time now. I feel like that's something we hadn't talked about in one of these episodes. Yeah. Like the insurance implications. So, okay, you said one insurance wouldn't pay for it. What about the other one? Because you said he got two. He got the flight insurance and then also normal life insurance. Yeah. So uh, the air trip, he got the air trip policies at the airport. It, all that I saw in the documentation was that the Western Life Insurance Company had refused to pay off. I don't, I didn't have any information about the air trip policies. But yeah, I mean, there was, like I said, there were lawsuits filed over it and... Uh, it seems like ultimately those those were settled. So not that you're saying it's all conjecture, but the idea he's in debt, he stages his own death by having a plane go down. Right. And have his wife cash in on all the life insurance. Right. And then, I mean, that's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And then he disappears. Right. I don't believe there's any evidence that that happened. The life insurance company, of course, didn't want to pay out. You know, they, they want to try to introduce doubt whenever possible, especially since no body was recovered. It's just a, a, an interesting little bit of trivia for this, uh, for this particular incident. Mm-hmm. But that's it. I wish I had a more definitive answer for you. I think nowadays the modern consensus is that for whatever reason, the plane attempted to ditch, but that the ditching was unsuccessful. I think I've seen uh, interviews where experts think most likely in their mind, the scenario is that the plane came down to ditch then uh, the right, as it was ditching, the right wing came down a little too low and contacted the water, which caused them to fail in their ditching attempt. Like that one flight where uh, there was the hijackers uh, and they tried to ditch right on the beach? That's exactly what I was going to bring up. Uh, it, it, was probably, it was probably very <laughs> similar to that, where you know one of the wings comes down a little into the water and then at that point the plane breaks up uh, and the ditching uh, is not successful. But we don't know the specific circumstances that led them to need to ditch. You know, we may never know that, unfortunately. But nowadays, things like this ideally don't happen. And if they do happen, there's a lot more technology to, to track. Like I mean, we have black boxes now, so we can figure out what happened and, and learn lessons from it. This particular plane, this uh, Boeing Stratocruiser 377, did not have the best safety record. Um, it did have uh, some known issues. So uh, it's very probable that there were mechanical issues uh, that led to this plane coming down. Okay. But that's it. I mean, I guess we can all take solace in the fact that flying is a lot safer nowadays and that we get to Hawaii twice as fast as we used to. (laughs) But we can't fly around the world. I guess even if we could fly around the world, I would not pay $28,000 to fly around the world today. Yeah, I guess it'd be probably cheaper just to buy individual tickets and not. I wonder how much it would cost if I was to like sit down and try to plan a trip and uh, go around the world. Um, I might do that this afternoon if I have some free time. I'm going to try <laughs> I'm going to try to see the airports that this flight was supposed to fly to and I'm going to try to see what a modern flight would cost to recreate those stops. I guarantee you it'd be a lot faster than five days. Uh, yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, that's it for this episode of Black Box Down. Uh, I want to thank everyone for listening. We really appreciate it. We could not do this podcast without you and your support. Really, really thank you so much uh, for letting us pursue this passion project. We really appreciate yeah. it. And thank you to everyone who does follow us on social media and comments and and shares stuff and leaves us messages. We got a lot of really nice messages from people. We can't always respond to all of them. Um, yeah. But one I shared recently with Dennis and, and Gus was uh, from a, a pilot from South Australia where her and her sister would listen to Black Box Down and now they uh, listens to it 
on flights, which is fun. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I mean, we you know we get a lot of messages, and unfortunately, we can't reply to all of them. We try to do our best to reply to them, but uh, we do read all of them, or as almost as many as we can, and we talk about them internally, even if we don't reply publicly. I know after our uh, Max Eight episode, Chris shared a message from uh, an aircraft mechanic who uh, disagreed with some of our uh, our thoughts about the Max Eight. And, you know, we had an internal discussion about it going back and forth about yeah. <laughs> uh, whether or not, you know, we were right or they were right. And in the end, you know, there's there's a lot of gray area, I think. Uh, sometimes it's good to, like, revisit and really think about it. Be like, you know, are there other angles we should be thinking about this from? But yeah. uh, it's, always, it's always good. We have a lot of uh, healthy discussions about it. So thank you. So, yeah, thank you so much. All right. See you all next time. Bye.